0: This is episode six, the push and pull of intelligence with security and intelligence leader, James Gooding. You're listening to The Business of Intelligence, a podcast that explores how intelligence serves decision makers beyond the traditional national security audience. Tune in as we connect with some of the world's leading practitioners working at the intersection of business and risk in order to analyze and discuss the field of private sector intelligence. We'll talk about what's working, what isn't, and how intelligence is helping organizations navigate today's global operating environment. Welcome back, everyone, to the Business of Intelligence podcast. Michael, we've got a great episode on tap with security and intelligence expert James Gooding. I know we talked to him earlier today, and I'm just curious, what are your initial thoughts or or takeaways from that conversation?
1: Hey Ryan, first of all, how's everything? I gotta say, I thought that episode we recorded today was was amazing. James is one of the first people I met in the private sector when I started my career journey. I think he's a very solid, good friend. He's a very proficient intelligence and security professional, and also has a great sense of humor. So I thought the episode did a great job of, missing, of uh, mixing up that combination of his personality.
0: Yeah, Speaking of sense of humor, I'm wondering if one of these days we go to video podcasts because we had such a good time talking to each other. (laughs) And obviously that was behind the scenes before we even started recording. So maybe that's something to think about down the road. But the one thing that I, I can't stop thinking about, we have that rapid fire section, right? And normally we encourage everyone to just have short answers so we can sort of go through and have a little bit of fun. But He actually took the rapid fire section and gave just even deeper insights and perspective. So he had so much to offer. I thought it was amazing. We were talking afterwards and we definitely want to have him on again. Um, So hopefully he'll come back and join us. But let me give a little background here and just get this intro going. So James spent 16 years working in the UK government in a range of defense and security intelligence roles, working both in the UK and overseas. He left government in 2016 to work in an international hospitality company, first as a security director and then as their global director of intelligence. James moved in 2020 to work in the safety tech sector, working for a company seeking to identify and reduce online harms. So Listen, everyone, I hope you enjoy Episode 6 with James Gooding. It's called The Push and Pull of Intelligence, How Intelligence Professionals Can Build Client Rapport and Better Position Their Value Proposition. Enjoy, everyone, and take care.
1: Welcome, everyone, to the Business of Intelligence podcast, TBOI. Today, Ryan and I are very excited to have our guest, James Gooding, on the show. Uh, Quick background. Ryan and I first met James at the beginning of my transition career journey. We were at a Pulse 360 conference in Vienna, Austria. James is one of the first people I met during the social event. I was immediately uh, impressed with James's very sophisticated accent, as well as his, not only his personality and sense of humor, but the competencies he immediately demonstrated in security and intelligence knowledge. Uh, He's a great example of an Intel professional who successfully transitioned from the public sector and he's already made a tangible impact in multiple sectors. James, welcome to the show. Great to see you. Thank you. Thank you, Michael.
2: Thanks for those generous comments. I've always said you're a very shrewd judge of character. <laughs>
1: uh. <laughs> so, <laughs> How did you get to where you are today, specifically down the career path for intelligence? Uh, you know, going way back, what originally drew you to the
2: field? My academic background was analytical arts, so history, politics, and anything that had very limited taught hours at university. So I guess I'm one of the rare people that's made use of a history degree ever, in that when I was looking for a career, I was looking for something in my late teens, early 20s that I guess reflected some of the academic study I've been doing, which was military history, intelligence studies, security studies, that type of thing. I considered military and law enforcement and uniform service, but lacked the physical commitment to being uncomfortable, but at the same time identified intelligence work as something that would give some of the benefits to that type of government service without having to be cold and muddy quite as much. So I applied to UK government and was lucky enough to get the job uh, in 2000, just before the world changed. So it was quite a nice peacetime intelligence job. And then obviously 18 months later, all hell broke loose. And that's really how I got into into this line of work,
1: yeah, no, it's amazing. you definitely I think we're actually all three of us, but it was definitely a interesting pivot in history, and uh I think it brought us down different roads we didn't expect, but uh, yeah, just talking to you one on one you know I've been impressed with some of the amazing stories you have, and then. You know, after 16 years of public service, you decided to do a transition to the private sector. Uh, You know, a lot of our audience asks questions on how to do the pivot or how to get into the field. Can you walk us through some of the challenges and opportunities you faced during your transition?
2: Certainly. So I think the main thing to to stress is that anyone that is in Government intelligence service in any capacity has an enormous amount of transferable skills and they are skills that are highly useful in the private sector. I think it's just worth understanding the different contexts, different challenges that you will face when you move from government service to private sector service. Oftentimes, I think the job itself is is broadly the same. You're imparting information to customers so they can have decision advantage. But I think for me, there were three massive, massive differences that I, I noticed and I still notice now throughout my private sector career, and the first of which I would say is the scope and scale of private sector intelligence work. It is different to government service. I know that there are people that do very wide you know, strategic analysis and stuff like that, but in my personal career, and the career of most of my contemporaries, we were quite specialists. We were looking at a threat from a certain terrorist organisation to a certain part of the UK or a threat from a you know, geographic state actor to the UK. What we weren't looking at, generally speaking, was the world, the globe. And I think more often than not, in intelligence teams in the private sector, you are looking at massive regions, you are looking at global, you're looking at EMEA, you're looking at LATAM or something like that. And you might be looking at every single threat in that. So I went from being, in my personal context, looking at threats to a specific part of the UK... So essentially looking at every single threat to a global hotel company in the world. And that scale, that need to draw out from the detail, that need to work on a very, very grand strategic focus, but yet still be able to zoom into the tactical and operational problems, I think was a, was one of the biggest challenges I had at not getting too down in the weeds when there's one of me, 128 countries that this, this company were working in, and myriad threats that were growing all the time. So I think that is a, a very, very important point to make, that you will need to be a generalist. You know, If you're comfortable being a specialist, then actually you need to kind of broaden your focus out. It's not to say there aren't specialist jobs, but I think for the most part, that is quite a big big issue. I'd say the second thing is moving into an environment where people aren't instinctive customers for intelligence. So if you're working in government, certainly if you're working in the intelligence services, military or the police you're tending to be dealing with people whose entire careers are bound up with using, acting on intelligence and they understand how to use it. And even if you're in an outward facing job where you're talking to a wider government community that isn't you know, intelligence specialists, generally still government understand how to use intelligence. In the private sector, that is, that is patchy and it's not the same. And you may be dealing with companies or working for companies where you're either setting up a new intelligence capability or you're dealing with a company that is new to using this information where people aren't instinctive intelligence customers. They don't understand sometimes what intelligence is. They don't understand how to use it. They don't understand what they're supposed to do with it. So I had to spend a lot more time than I'd ever done before explaining some of these concepts to people, explaining what we could do with intelligence work, what we could do with security threat intelligence, how it worked, which leads me to my next point, the terminology and how we talk and how we present ourselves. So we had real problems several times about the word intelligence. Actually, what does it mean? Because intelligence in the private sector can be business intelligence, competitor intelligence, consumer intelligence. It's not normally and not naturally threat intelligence. That doesn't normally apply. So I think in a lot of companies, you have to really define what intelligence means and sometimes realize that that word itself and associated terminology that we would use as intelligence practitioners in the government can be really unhelpful in the private sector. It can be alienating, it can be settling, uncomfortable, it can have connotations in particular countries that are particularly unhelpful, particularly in countries with autocratic regimes or histories of autocratic regimes. So I think all of those things, just understanding that, it's a very different beast in some ways, but your core skills are still very, very transferable and very, very useful. But you have to adapt them.
0: There's so much to unpack there. There's a lot of good things. I, I know we wanted to get to something that we heard you talk about before, which is the business intelligence model. But before we do that, let me just underscore one thing and then ask you a follow-up if that's okay. So underscoring the idea of being a generalist versus a specialist. So I think for anyone listening who is who is trying to make this transition, or if you're looking for jobs right now, please please keep that in mind because whether you're an analyst versus a collector, or maybe you have a a geographic area of expertise and that's been your focus your entire career, just keep in mind that unless you go to a big team in the private sector, a very big team, which may have specialists, I think James, you bring up just such a great point because you're gonna be doing a broad variety of things. And oftentimes you're tapped on the shoulder to do jobs even outside of, let's say, the job that you were hired for. So I think that's a really great point. The other thing that really resonated with me, and, and you have a more eloquent way of saying it, I, I've always said that in the private sector, our customers are not necessarily sophisticated consumers of intelligence. I realize that's probably, probably offensive as I say that out loud, but you, know, you said they're not necessarily instinctive customers. So is there anything that you've done in the past to sort of bring them on board and bring them along so they sort of get what you're selling?
2: We are kind of moving on to, I guess... Um... Business intelligence, as as I defined it very poorly and confusingly at a conference, but it's the idea that you need to be entrepreneurial with your intelligence programs. You need to win customers over. It's not enough just to say we're in the intelligence team. You should read what we've got to write. You've got to explain to people why it's of benefit to them, particularly if you're working in a company where this hasn't been a capability that's had before. And I think it's worth noting that in the, what is it, five and a bit years I've been in the private sector, The speed and scale of growth in intelligence teams across companies and companies that would never have had them five years ago is astonishing. So there's a lot of companies out there that are just now really getting to grips with how to use intelligence and how to set these things up. You do have to win the trust of your customers. You have to understand who the people are that are going to be your advocates, that are going to be the evangelists for what you can do. So in my particular experience, we spent a lot of time working with key leaders in the regions we were supporting to get them to understand what we could do, to get them to understand sometimes what we could not do. um, And how, most importantly, to use the information we were giving them, because it wasn't enough just to give them a report and say, there you go, this is a threat you need to deal with. How do we shepherd them through Dealing with that, how do we work with the security teams that are implementing some of the recommendations that we are giving? So I think it's that taking a step back and thinking how do we how do we help this person or empower this person or in sometimes coach this person to be an effective customer of intelligence? And how do we empower them to therefore empower their colleagues and their subordinates to be good customers of intelligence? So it's a process of actually putting a lot of time into people before almost you start writing the first report. It's about understanding where you want to be and who the people are that you need to have on your side
0: yeah one of the things we talk about quite a bit on the podcast is this phrase intelligence is a participatory sport so you can't sort of sit on the sidelines (laughs) and just hope that what you're what you're sending or selling or providing is effective so I, I think that's a great approach so let me just take a step back and see if you have anything else to to speak to this. But what I want everyone else to hear is that we heard you speak at a conference and you talked about this idea of a business intelligence model and how it needs to address both the intelligence and security functions. And so I think you just sort of laid it out for everyone in terms of you really have to have this entrepreneurial mindset. Is there anything else when you're defining the business intelligence model and is it, is it different than the intelligence cycle which is what we're all kind of used to if we come from government or military?
2: I would say it's distinct from the intelligence cycle. Yeah. The intelligence cycle is really obviously how to how to move information through the assessment, validation, and dissemination process. And there are elements of it, I guess. But what I'm talking about more when I talk about the business intelligence cycle, it's about how you set your program up for success. And the entrepreneurial bit um, comes from... i am i ripping this off from a talk that I went to at the DC Analyst Roundtable, probably in 2016, where a company called Lutok were talking. I think they were acquired by BDO. But they had a very, very interesting model about how to embed crisis management in companies. And the speaker, Sean, was talking about treating every single report that's opened as a commercial sale. You know, you have to sell your services. You have to look for that kind of transactional relationship where you're providing your, your customer is actually a customer it's not just that awful government word of customer you treat them as they were a customer you want them to be a repeat customer because they have other things to do in the private sector they don't have to read this stuff it's not like government where you have to read it because it's part of your job it's the private sector you, you don't have to if you don't think it's useful you've got a thousand and one other things to do and particularly in i guess some of the less hard-edged industries like hospitality you know i think if you're working in Let's say extractives in North Africa, you've probably got quite a strong tradition of intelligence and security and you quite defined accountabilities for that. Whereas things like hospitality or you know retail maybe slightly less defined. So it's about getting people to decide they want your reports and they want more than one of them. So taking that kind of sales aspect to it, which encompasses anything from developing the relationship the look of what you're doing the look of the product how it fits with other communications that are being put out by the company how it fits with culture all of those types of things so almost what you're saying in the intelligence report or what you're saying in your intelligence briefings
1: is it's as important as how you say it and who you're saying it to yeah sorry james i'm I'm just uh i'm listening to that answer and I'm, i'm actually going back to your first one specifically the uh succinct description on specialist versus generalist during the transition. And, you know, it's such a relevant topic. There's a lot of discussion on LinkedIn and other places. And I think you really articulated well. I think sometimes, uh, especially the former government or military people, we really get in the weeds about what is an Intel analyst or, you know, as Ryan and I always push on our podcast, intelligence advisor, or intelligence professional. So that, that was great. And I, I could almost see Ryan and I doing a Separate episode just on that first three bullets you gave us, but I guess back to the uh, business intelligence model, can you explain any differences that you might have had because you're semi unique in the aspect that you've been on both the intelligence and security side now and again, I think sometimes people you know make it a hard line like human intelligence and counterintelligence is like a hard wall. security and Intel are two different things. but you know how, how would you describe your view of the Business intelligence model, having seen both sides of the spaces.
2: Well, I think, but I think there should be a really close relationship between security and intelligence. And I think, frankly, you know, and this might, might be controversial view. You, if you're in a security function that's not intelligence led, you're fundamentally wasting your time because you're just going to be reacting. You're going to be chasing people down the street where they've already robbed you. You need to be ahead of the threat. And I think, you know, since nine eleven, if you look at the trajectory of the private security industry within corporate security, I mean. That's becoming increasingly the case. People are becoming more intelligence-led. And I think that relationship has to be one of understanding. If, if you're in an intelligence team, you have to understand the capabilities, resources, and priorities of the security function. If you're in the security function, you have to understand how to be a customer of intelligence and how to know what you need to know. I think that you know, there are tensions sometimes. Like a classic tension, I think, in hospitality is that of... A major security problem for a hotel is petty crime. It's bag thefts. It's having your luggage lifted in reception. It's pickpocketing. It's assaults on guests, that type of thing. For a corporate company, though, the big ticket stuff is things like terrorism, things like activism. It's things like those dynamic, highly violent incidents. And you've got a, a tension in some ways between the high likelihood but relatively low impact crime against the low likelihood but high impact terrorist attack. And there is definitely a tension there between intelligence teams who are more prone to looking at the high impact stuff and less prone to be looking at the low impact stuff. But that will happen more often. And I think that tension can be resolved in, in frank conversations. It can be resolved in, in using metrics, it can be resolved in a variety of different measures. But I think there are differences between the two. And the more people that can sort of segue between security and intelligence, the more time that both functions can understand each other, the better. But what I think is happening more and more is that there is integrated security and intelligence teams. You're seeing that across industry where people are talking into an security team that has almost its own intelligence officer. He's pushing information in there that's embedded with them, co-located, and that can understand that.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. I mean, I think we've talked about that tension before a little bit. I mean, just to add a, a quick follow-up question, do you think it's just a matter of communication? I think one of the tactics that you gave to help solve that tension is just to better understand what each function does and how you can help each other. Is it, is it just a communication issue or a, a lack of understanding in terms of capabilities? Do you think that's the biggest thing?
2: I think it can be. Yeah, it can be a communication issue. I mean, there are fundamentally different, Roles and responsibilities. And I guess, you know, if you look at it, different types of people attracted to the different silos. And obviously you have people that move between the two. But I think it's very similar to the relationship, say, between the UK, the intelligence services as the providers of intelligence to the executive agencies of the police and the military. So the intelligence services are saying this is the threat, this is what the threat's going to manifest, this is how it manifests. And the executive agencies need to take the action on that. And I think that boundary is quite handy or that the that division is I think is quite handy in the private sector to kind of remember if you think of the security functions as the executive part of the program and I think that intelligence providers have to be probably better than they are now that's getting better but better than they are now at making calls to action what is the call to action from this report if I'm putting a report out about let's say terrorist threat surveillance on hotels in Africa what am I asking people to do how am I making this a useful report it's not just it's happening it's this is happening these are the remarkable features about it so a, a good example of this was in indonesia maybe two three years ago when Ji started to use or is started to use uh, female and family suicide bombing groups and the intelligence report was simply that but you know the call to action would be that you need to broaden your counter-surveillance programs a, a traditional counter-surveillance program would include males of fighting age wouldn't include a family group it wouldn't include children and that you need to apply your hostile surveillance principles to wider demographics that you would not normally do. It would have been quite easy to write the report and just say, this has happened. In it was, a, I think, was a suicide bombing of a church. This is a suicide bombing in a church. But to make that extra leap to have the transferability to this is a soft target. This is somewhere that could be attacked. These are the reasons why we're telling you this. I think that's really, really important. And I think I'm not just talking about private sector intelligence. I think generally government intelligence, certainly in the UK, And the stuff I've seen from the U.S. is getting better at the so what aspect to it.
0: Why don't we go back to the intelligence cycle real quick or the business intelligence cycle? Can you, I mean, talk at all and maybe I know you've hit on this a little bit already, but was there anything that resonated with you in terms of how you introduced it when you were working in the hospitality sector or just in your previous roles at all? Sort of how do you introduce that and bring it to life to where these customers that are not instinctive customers sort of understand it and get it? Two
2: really important parts of it is to make sure your program is part of the company and it's not an other part of the company. So it's not the other bit of the company, if that makes sense. So it's quite easy to be an outsider as an intelligence person. You're looking outside the company, unless you're doing insider threat, in which case if you're looking outside the company, that's the wrong place you should be looking inside. (laughs) But if you are an intelligence person, generally you're looking at external threats. My key relationships were probably external to my company, not internal, because they're going to give me the most information. You have to make sure that your function is part of the company. And that, that can be as simple as that you present like everyone else in the company. So you don't, if everyone else in the company wears smart casual, you don't wear suits and ties that, you know, you don't put any barrier between you and the rest of the company. You communicate in a way that they're used to. So if actually people are more comfortable clicking links than downloading PDFs, you mirror that. You make yourself part of that company and part of that culture and that already kind of takes down some of the barriers that you've got i think the other thing is to take really really calculated opportunities to prove value so you know never let a good crisis go to waste it's a classic saying but actually it's really really true the times i think when we got the most the giant step forward in our relationships with people were when crisis happened. So when the Bataclan, the November 2015 attacks happened, the Nice attacks, certainly in Europe, when we had bombings and hotel bombings like in Sri Lanka, that was when we as a function were able to add real value, come into decision makers and say, look, this is how we can support you in this. This is how we, these are the products we can do. These are the things we can push forward with you most. And I think it's about, making yourself a natural interlocutor in these processes that you're the first person they think of talking to when it comes to this you write reports in a way that are engaging you give products look like everything else that comes out of the company they're comfortable with reading it that type of thing
0: that's amazing advice so mike i know you're going to ask a follow-up i think you've got one ready I i just wanted to touch on one thing really quick that you said james the idea of feeling like an outsider so one of the things that I love about our field is that we're it's a very close-knit group, right? We share a lot of information, we do a lot of benchmarking, we get together at external conferences, and it's amazing and I feel like we have this wonderful community. One thing that does strike me though is when I'm working with let's say my HR peers or my peers in operations or in legal. Yeah, they they go to conferences and they do things outside the business, but not nearly as much as we do. And I've started to ask myself why. I think I've talked about this on maybe an Arab webinar before. But it's it's because I think maybe those functions have done a better job at sort of building community inside their organization as opposed to outside their organization. So I love, I just love your advice in terms of some of these things that you can do not to be an outsider. And it sort of ties into what you were talking about in the transition from government to the private sector. You can take a lot of things over. You really can, but there there are some differences and they're very nuanced. And there's some things that we just have to let go of that we have a hard time letting going of that. We we're so used to doing it this way, but in the private sector, again, maybe they don't like the PDFs or they don't like the PowerPoints and they just want to click on a link, like you said. So. I just love that advice. I wanted to amplify that, that just for everyone listening, think about what it means to not be an outsider. How do you sort of ingratiate yourself to your organization? And there's some really, really small things that you can do that will make a big difference. So I just love that advice. So Mike, go ahead. I know you're chomping at the bit.
1: No, no, I'm I'm actually listening to what both James and you were saying, because it is so critical. And I think especially to... People that are earlier in their career transition to the private sector journey, it's really critical to understand all these concepts that the customer might not necessarily know what you have to offer and to make sure you're blending in with the corporate culture you're entering. So now I think it's critical. You know, just another thing I wanted to ask kind of a follow up and James, you've you mentioned customer feedback several times, but you know I think one thing we're always trying to do on TBOI is give people practical, concrete examples of, of how things are done just so they can improve their own programs. So could, can you give any specific examples of how you've championed and achieved customer feedback? I think the dissemination part
2: of the, the intelligence cycle is one of the, the least regarded and the most important part of it. No one, you've got Collectors focus on collecting intelligence and analysts focus on analyzing it. Nobody focuses on emailing it to someone. I mean, that's just like, who wants to do that? And it's the critical bit because that's where you fall down. You can have the best intelligence in the world. It can be the best analysis in the world. If it's not presented in a fact that's engageable, readable, or accessible, it's just pointless. You might as well not have bothered. And in fact, you've created potentially an intelligence failure risk for yourself. So I think one of the things about, feedback is, is being really assiduous and getting people to feedback to you. People don't do it generally. Now, we struggle with this in the government. Every report came back, C, building block intelligence, cheers. You could have like, this is exactly where Bin Laden is at this very second. They'd be like, C, building block, thanks, cheers. And they'd do it about four months after you've actually like sent them the report. It's a challenge for government. It's a challenge in the private sector. And I, I'm not a massive believer in kind of gradings and metrics like that. I just think it becomes a tick box exercise. So what we try to do was actually personally engaged with people. You know, what did you like about this report? And you can't do it with everybody, but you can do it with the key opinion formers. what was good about this. So I think understanding that customer's king thing, this comes back to the sales thing. Actually, if it's not readable, if it's not useful, if it's not good, it's not a good intelligence product, no matter how polished it can be. And there's a really clear example of this from my experience where we used to spend every month, we would put together a global threat survey it was a monster to do. It was about a week and a half's work. It would come in at about 15 pages of quite densely packed text, proper, really good British intelligence assessment, the really good stuff. No offense. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it, was, it was really good. But we used to get constant feedback. The expression was, this is like the news on steroids. And people just looked at it and thought we were repeating the news, partly because we probably weren't being proactive and forward-looking enough partly because it just told them stuff they kind of already knew, but in more depth. And it was quite frustrating feedback to get. We got it three or four months in a row. And I was personally getting my nose out of joint about this. I was like, people just don't understand how amazing this product is. But then I was thinking, actually, it's not because no one's reading it. I'm wasting my time doing it. And we looked through it and radically redid it. We actually just put headline points in. We used enormous amounts of graphics. We started to use things like Tableau. We started to create no more than a paragraph per story. We began to use textual simplicity ratings like the Fleisch-Kincaid rule, and we wouldn't have anything over, I think, 30 in it. So we were taking out all the kind of Churchillian Latin English that we were using, keeping it really simple and actually testing every single thing. Does this need to go in there? Why is this in here? What does it give? And signposting, why are we telling you this? So we actually had what's happening what you need to do, and then why this is important as a box underneath. Just express, this is why you, we're telling you. We're not telling you this for fun. This is why you should know this. And we managed to get it down to, I think, two pages per month. And it had exactly the same impact in that. way, well, didn't. It was actually good. The impact was people would actually read it. They'd come back to us. They'd ask for more assessments because we'd made it accessible. We'd made it look like something the rest of the company did. It wasn't going out in 10-point Times New Roman, which, by the way, is the worst font there has ever been. And you should avoid without any doubt if you're doing intelligence programs. But we weren't putting it out in that. We were putting it out in the jazzy font that the hotel company used. We were putting it out in their colors. We were using lots of imagery. We started to use magazine style editing. So photographs with words over the top, things like that that would catch the eye. We also experimented with videos. So we would do video reports. We would do our own small podcasts. We actually found that for our customers, that wasn't really that effective because people would rather just scan read something than sit down for five minutes listening to even with my voice with me so but we tried it and i think that's what we're trying to do just how do we make this this information the most accessible that we can other really simple tactics were to pdf if we emailed something with a link with pdf the key points into the email so if you open the email you'd see the key points we distributed everything off a microsoft Teams site so we we stopped really using any kind of pdfs you could download stuff we had report libraries we had the ability to go in and see some of the raw intelligence from our providers that we were using we just tried to open it up as much as possible and demystify what we were
1: doing as much as possible and it had real impact i just want to tell our american listeners out there who may or may not be familiar with british intelligence it's exceptional but there's a considerable amount of typos they not a not a strong embrace of <laughs> the letters d or e-r <laughs> and re so that's it just wanted to <laughs>
2: yeah thanks for that e- extra using in words, doesn't there as well
0: <laughs> i love the jokes i felt like at the beginning and i was like oh we're gonna start off too formal and if if everyone just could have heard us chatting before this <laughs> and how hard we're laughing um maybe one of these days we'll go to video podcasts but i think it's phenomenal advice i really do there's three things that stood out to me that you said james and i just wanted to touch on them one, you didn't say this exactly, but essentially, what I heard you say was, "You learned that it's not about you; it's about them and them meaning the customer and it It took you know me transitioning to the private sector to realize that because when I was in the military and leading intelligence functions, I thought it was about us. This is great intelligence. How could they not love yeah. this? Look at this beautiful report. I'm embarrassed, absolutely embarrassed to say that I used to f- spend so much time and attention thinking about what the thing looked like versus are they actually going to action it or need it? The second thing that I heard you say was just how important it is to be a storyteller. And I love the fact that you just talk about the, I'll call it the strategic use of headings. Even this is what you need to know. This is what you need to do with it, et cetera. So I think everyone listening, just keep that in mind. I mean, at the end of the day, we're all storytellers and I couldn't agree more about how the dissemination piece of the intel cycle is. We don't forget about it, but it's not valued as much as, let's say, the analysis and the collection piece. And I think you're right. If we don't, if we don't pin that down, then it's pretty much all for naught, almost. So the strategic use of headings, I, I love it. And then again, going back, you spoke to this earlier, and I think of it as sort of building credibility in terms of put things in a format that the company uses and understands. That's how they they do it. So, you sort of mirrored that. And so, I know a lot of organizations, you know, if you still use PowerPoint, then if that's what the company uses or the organization uses, then maybe that's what you want to use. If they're used to looking at something as if it's written by like the New York Times, then then do that. But I think sharing your work and disseminating it in a way that they're used to consuming, I think is is really, really smart. So
2: I think like, oh. one of our key vendors, so we, you know, we we obviously, as an intelligence team, had a range of vendors that were giving us intelligence. But some of the, one of the most key things we actually had was a, a subscription to Shutterstock for the imagery. And we used, I, mean, we, I think we had about, well, I can't remember what it was now, about 250 images a month, and we would burn through them every month for presentations, for our reports. We would have... Everything was very, very visual by the end because that was how the company communicated. So we got some really, really good feedback on it. You know, if we did a presentation, we'd have like bands on bullet points, you know, no bullet points, just words that you can kind of call to and come back to and stuff like that. So in the four years I was there, it really did transform from, I guess, something that would have been familiar to someone that was probably working in intelligence in the 50s to looking a little bit more like some kind of skate magazine by the time we'd left due to my obvious youth and uh, connection with the youth as well.
0: <laughs> oh, man. Hey, You know, you mentioned metrics. Let's talk about that real quick, because Michael and I have both heard you talk about metrics and I think talk about it really intelligently, no pun intended, but <laughs> look at me there making jokes. <laughs> so I know, <laughs> I know how you feel about metrics. I'm hoping you can share with everyone else how you feel. But What are some things that you use to establish, let's say, key performance indicators? Or or maybe the best way to put it is, how do you identify success as an intelligence function if you're not using some of these traditional metrics that I know we all are not huge fans of?
2: I think there's definitely a place for metrics, but you need to be measuring the right stuff. So when I was first in government, we were in an assessment section. Our metric would simply be how many reports did each person write then that would be it. If you wrote 20 reports in a month, you were a good analyst. And it was pure output. It was like, uh, I've signed that report off, it's gone. We had no idea if anyone was reading any of those reports at all. And for me, that is a complete waste of time. Like productivity is not an indication of quality. So within government, they started to look more at impact uh, effects, what effects were taken from the reporting that we were putting out. And actually, how many people read it and how many people opened the email? So we mirrored that. We went from an initial position of we measured our outputs by numbers of reports generated. But then when we began to use more sophisticated dissemination methods, particularly things like Teams, particularly things like link-based stuff, we were able to actually measure how many people read each report we send out. And it's not the best measurement in the world, but I think it's more effective than how many reports have you written. Because what we were able to do is analyze which type of report got opened you know if we sent out a long report on cartel activity in in mexico is that appealing to people who's who's opening it who's actually reading it because this this report is written for really two people but we're sending it to quite a broad distribution because other people might find that useful is that a good thing to do should we be doing that should we just write these reports to two people and that matters because they are the people that need to know it. Are we diluting our effect by sending it to loads of people? If we send the report to 20 people, but the two people we want to read it don't, is that a success or is it not? So there's lots of different ways you can look at this and lots of different ways you can cut it. But what we really focused on just for want of, a, I think, a perfect method was to look at who accessed the reports and how quickly were they accessed after they were sent. And we had different types of reports. We had emergency ones that would be going out for ongoing terrorist attack we would have strategic reports about threat level changes in regions we would have reports on trends for example so one of the things we did quite successfully in the team i was in was start to look at how security was driving consumer behavior and how it was changing some of the questions that hotels were getting asked and influencing business decisions who's reading those reports and how quickly are they being read and we were able to kind of map the decision makers that were actually reading the reports and opening the reports And work out which formats would work best, work out which one's the most impactive, and then kind of overlay the informal feedback that we'd gone to go and get. And I don't think there is a a perfect way of doing this. That was about as near to what we found effective for us as possible, because we could actually actually use that as management
1: information. Hey, James, that that was a great example. We talked about it before we started recording. Could you also throw out the example you gave about hotel industry reports you had on how on how to frame the audience? Well, I mean, this isn't just hotels. This is if you're
2: working for any kind of global company and you're communicating to loads of people across the world. I guess most companies I work with or work around have English as the company language, and obviously some would have Spanish and other languages too. But we were finding that we were writing, again, what what we thought were really, really impressive uh, intelligence reports, but they were going to non-native English speakers and they were too complex. So the, the message was getting lost. We were asking someone to wade through an A4-typed page of English text, whereas actually what we could have done and what we started to do was very much like, this is a paragraph written in the simplest English we can possibly write, that if we needed to translate it into into Spanish, we needed to translate it into Chinese, it would be very, very easy to do. And actually what we found in the initial part of the COVID response, because we'd settled a lot of this stuff by then, um, and when COVID hit, the intelligence reports we were writing, the kind of daily insums of tracking infections sometimes they did need to be translated into into the various languages of some of the countries we were working on because we would got into the habit of keeping everything very snappy and everything to almost tweet length if we could it became much easier for that process to happen than it would have been if covid had happened like five years before
0: great mike do you have anything else or do you want to start going towards rapid fire what do you think
1: uh, yeah, you know, I'm I'm just sitting here. I think we've both been furiously taking notes. Uh, I think this ought to be another episode where we kind of break down separately. But not, I, I think I'm ready for the rapid fire round just because uh, just for our audience, one of the things we've been trying to do is, is uh, have high content, high impact, and just cut the times down a little bit, keep it under the hour. So I guess, James, you have any uh, alibis on anything we talked about so far before we jump into the rapid fire? I don't think so. No, it was really great information. I think, you know, you've heard some of our other episodes. We we try to keep the answer standard just because we think it's a good way for people to to get to know our our guests a little better and also maybe pull out some additional information to learn from them. I'm a little afraid what the answer might be to this question, but I'm going to ask anyway, where is your favorite place in the world and why? Well, I mean, anywhere you are, Michael.
2: Um, <laughs> uh, my favourite place in the world, I, I would say probably. I'm gonna go be really boring and just say a dive bar in London. It's called Bradley's Spanish Bar. It's just like, you should go. Just up near Tottenham Court Road station. It's proper old school. It's got an old jukebox. It's vile. It smells. I love it. It's about four meters by five meters. It's, it's basically a COVID hotspot right now. But after the <laughs> pandemic, like go
0: go. You lovely. Maybe we could do a live episode from there one of these <laughs> days. Yeah, yeah.
2: You just, you just swear <laughs> me, quite <a>
0: good. <laughs> you know, just trying to throw
1: out some uh, additional resources for listeners out there. Like any book, article, presentation, anything uh, interesting you've read or seen recently that might be good for for listeners out there to to follow. I haven't actually. I'm a terrible. I, no, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> oh no, no, fair enough. Let's go back though. Just one last chance at that one. When you were in the hotel and lodging industry, what what was something that you that you looked at for inspiration, maybe to learn more about the industry or about the intel space? I would appeal to that. Well, one thing I
2: did, which I thought was incredibly useful, was join Chatham House. So the Chatham House International Think Tank it was like grand strategy it was way way above the kind of level that i needed but actually it really really helped us with particularly identification of threats before they manifested and uh, in particular <laughs> anyone i worked with is listening to this I, my, my response to everything in about 2019 was wait till the pandemic hits because i went to a uh, influenza pandemic seminar at chatham house and i sat there and for two days i was terrified i was thinking why am I even worrying about terrorism? I mean, this is this is the serious stuff. It was so worrying that someone coughed on the second day and the entire auditorium nearly, <laughs> nearly left. It was that broader threat thing. So actually, you know, pandemics was something that we had begun to think about quite carefully as a massive global risk because of this seminar that really wasn't on my radar as a security terrorism focused person. But I think that's very, very useful to get those kind of wider things. The other thing I would say is if you get the opportunity, join the intelligence networks. So I've, I've got so much. I, I am on the steering committee for the London Intelligence Forum. We ally with all the analysts roundtables tables around the world, obviously ARIP, ASIS International. But the more you can do this, the more opinions you get and the more interesting people you get to meet, the more bars in Vienna you get to go to and meet interesting people. <laughs> it's But it's a great way to do stuff because it, it takes you out of your industry silo. So in hospitality, we were very lucky. We had an OSAC-sponsored working group with all the major brands on and you know, genuinely still friends with those guys now. They're absolutely invaluable colleagues, you know, as close as colleagues, as people from within the company I worked for. But going outside that, to meet people from the airline industry, to meet people from retail, from food, from all different types of security backgrounds and intelligence backgrounds was phenomenal because it just broadens your horizons to different things. I remember, you know, talking to Ryan about some of the stuff he was dealing with in his job and some of the stuff I was dealing with, which were on face value, quite different, but actually when you draw down to it, it similar threats and, you know, we would alert each other to things that were happening. And it, it's that's I would say the top tip I would have is network because it's not a waste of time. It's brilliant. And, it's also just really fun.
1: That's an incredible anecdote. And that's I think that's great to hear. I'm prompted, because that's one of the things TBOI is really trying to stress in a lot of ways is there is this whole greater risk community risk space. And by getting into outside of the silo you might identify with, you get a much more holistic understanding of what's out there.
2: I think that's uh, even more important going forward as risks become broader and you know things like reputational risk becomes a driver of security risk. We're gonna have different types of things driving the security and threat intelligence risks going forward. So I think, you know, climate change being a classic one here. So we are going to need to start as, a, I guess, a group of people that probably come from quite a traditional intelligence background, need to start being a little bit more open to people from different intelligence backgrounds, whether it's health, whether it's
1: environmental, whether it's weather or whatever. I like to caveat this question to all our guests. This is pre December twenty nineteen question mindset. Uh, take out the pandemic. If there's a instance in your past where you had a, you had to face an unknown unknown black swan, whatever you want to call it, something that was completely outside the scope of the the world as you saw it and what the incident was, but more importantly, how did you adapt to it and what can you share with people on how to how to face challenges that were unexpected and adapt and overcome.
2: The one I'll use for this isn't actually a personal one to me, but it was the first time that I realized that climate change was going to be a serious, serious driver of unrest and and security threat. We had a situation in Cape Town in about 2018, 2019, where there was a water shortage and the water was running out in the city because of drought. And to safeguard the central business district, they were moving water from outlying villages and outlying towns into central Cape Town. And they were supplying hotels, they were supplying businesses, they were supplying breweries, all kinds of places. And it was leading to fast moving, violent unrest risks against places that had access to water. And a lot of the hotel companies, you know, they had two issues really, one of which is a reputational issue of people in swimming pools while people were literally drinking from lorries that were running out of water 10 miles away but also the fact that for the first time in my awareness, people would be attacking or potentially attacking businesses to access water. And to me, that was a really, really vivid indicator that this is going to be a threat that there's going to be fast moving. It's going to be very, very different. It's going to be the future of some of the stuff we're looking at. And I just remember kind of seeing that as a black Swan incident. I think I can't believe I'm actually doing a security plan for a response to demand for water. And the, the group i worked for had high value hotels it had multi-millionaires staying there it had government events and that was all very very familiar someone smashing into a hotel to get access to water not at all so I th- i'd say that was one of the kind of real turning points for me if not that i've like, been a climate change denier but i just hadn't i don't think properly anticipated, really understood what a driver of
0: threat it is going to be going forward let me go with the last question here, James. So the last one is always a little bit of a call to action. So what we mean by this is if there's anything that you're thinking of that we should be doing differently as a field or as a profession, or should we think about from a fresh perspective if there's anything on your mind in terms of a call to action for everybody listening?
2: I think actually it comes back to that last point. I think the threats that we have been looking at as, let's say, a group of intelligence professionals since nine eleven have been, largely dynamic, human-driven events. And I think we need to really, we are in the middle of doing it at the moment, but I think really, really embrace the fact that that's not necessarily going to be what's going to happen in the future, that it's not necessarily going to be human-driven, it's going to be environmental-driven, it's going to be health-driven, it's going to be the reaction to those kinds of events. And I think we need to be a little bit more open to collaboration. So one of the things that's happening towards the end of my time in hospitality was much more joint work with our environmental, social and uh, governance people. So working with the teams that were looking at that kind of stuff to understand how they could help us understand and interpret and get ahead of threats coming from that direction. Um, I know there's been a lot of work done, certainly on London Intelligence Forum recently, of getting health intelligence specialists in to talk about how COVID is going to move on, how access to medicines is going to happen. So we can overlay the medical and health intelligence with the threat intelligence. So I think we need to be probably broader in getting people outside of our relatively human dynamic threat backgrounds because let's face it still and this is another point i'd like to make still i think private sector intelligence is too dominated by people from services backgrounds and all three of us being (laughs) classic example we're fine there's not us but other people you know we need people coming (laughs) in that can understand some of these things that aren't coming at it from that kind of military counter-terrorist counter-activist or whatever it is background but coming in from things like health intelligence environmental intelligence weather intelligence all those types of things And i think we're going to have to be more sophisticated because i think the threats coming at us in the next 10 years are going to be massively different to what they were in the last 10 years.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great call to action. I mean, just reminds me of what you said at the beginning about focusing on being a generalist as opposed to necessarily a specialist. So, James, why don't we go ahead and close out? I mean, that was amazing. There's, We're going to do some show notes and I feel like there's so many different tactics and, and insights and perspectives you shared. Just as we sort of end this thing, I mean, is there... Is there anywhere where people can connect with you or do you have any, we want to give you the last word, essentially anything else that you want to close with? Where can people connect with you if you want them to, of course, or just anything else that's top of mind?
2: Well, working for a social media threats company, I don't use Twitter or Facebook. Um, I'm on on LinkedIn. So uh, just look me up on LinkedIn.
0: All right, great. That was outstanding. We really appreciate your time. We'd love to have you on again. I think everyone's really going to enjoy this. So having said that, uh, take care. I, I know Michael and I can't wait to see you in person if that ever happens one of these days. It will, it um, will. Yeah, I know. I'm going to knock on wood and, and hopefully 2022 is, is our year finally. But thank you so much for your time. And for everyone else listening, that does it for episode six with James Gooding, our security and intelligence expert and leader. Thanks for listening. And we will talk to you soon. Take care, everyone.